Welcome to For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest this week is Jordan Wright, CEO at Atomic, the leader in the payroll API space. We cover Jordan's storied background from his first exit with his last company, Unbill, what led him to founding Atomic today, and all kinds of advice for founders on fundraising, operating, and beyond. This episode of For Fintech's Sake is brought to you by Vsum. Vsum is a no-cost virtual conference exploring the value stack of the internet through live technology briefings and moderated small group discussions. Each virtual conference is limited to 100 people and the spots go fast. Learn more and apply to join at v-sum.com. And now, the great and powerful Jordan Wright. All right, Jordan Wright, my friend, I've been looking forward to this interview, this conversation, man, for three years, I think, like since we first met. And I was like, who is this human? Why does he know everyone in the world? So good to have you here. How's your day going? Going great. We've had a bunch of good customer conversations this morning, which are fun. I was looking forward to my hour and a half, two hours that I blocked out this afternoon for this conversation. It's going to be really fun. I love it, brother. I love it. Well, let's start before we get into some of that excitement with Atomic and everything else happening in your current life. Let's go back a little bit to the Jordan story of life kind of thing. Give us a sense of where you're from, kind of how you got into the entrepreneurial sphere and like, why do you have this startup bug that you seem to have and not be able to get rid of? Yeah. So uh, I, I grew up in a rural town in Southern Oregon. Maybe one of my first businesses was converting my parents' barn into a Hogwarts castle that I <laughs> charged a mission for to my local neighborhood kids um, when I was like 12 or 13. In my heart of hearts, I'm a big fantasy fan. And I certainly started that way. But also, um, you know, I always knew I wanted, I loved technology. And when I was like 12, I built my first computer. And my parents didn't even know kind of what was happening. Uh, they were just like, do whatever you want with all these computer parts. And I took apart old computers and, and had built some things. And so I love the combination of that. But I've also been pretty entrepreneurial since I was a young kid. So may, maybe that's where it started. Yeah, it's like Steve Wozniak meets uh, J.K. Rowling meets, uh, I don't know, <laughs> Roald Dahl or something like that. That's that's how I'm describing you. <laughs> awesome. So... The entrepreneurial history, I think, is a really interesting piece, and we'll get to Unbill and everything else. But one of the weird questions that I kind of want to start with is your theory of life as a human. You've been one of the most fascinating and helpful people since I got in truly into the world of like fintech as we see it today. And I was preparing for this interview and I noticed that we had 132 mutual connections on LinkedIn. I know people that don't have 132 connections on LinkedIn, much less, you know, 132 mutuals. And you're one of those people that if I bring you up in a conversation, generally, you know, if I'm talking to three people, at least one of those people, if not two or three is going to know who you are and will have talked to you and you probably have made an introduction for them at some point. So the question here is what is your mental model around relationship building or something? Why do you do things the way you do things? Like what drives that desire to help people to know everyone to, to be you? Well, you're very flattering here, Zach. And so I'm responding with, uh, you know, I don't think I'm all that great, but I do like people and I like the space. And 
I have received so much value from people that were willing to make an, make an introduction for me when I needed it, that it's the pay it for it, pay it forward mentality for me. Uh, when I see somebody that's really, really wants to do something great, I'll do everything I can in my power to help. You're making me feel a little bit guilty here because the last few months uh, have been very, very busy for me running a startup. And I feel like I haven't done as much of that recently, which is a prick of my conscience that I need to get back to spending a little bit more time on that. So thank you for that. But I'm really grateful for the opportunities that have come my way. And they came my way because people were willing to take a chance on me. And so hopefully I can do the same for others. I love it. And I mean, you can be the unabashedly modest human that you are and, you know, downplay it. But even if you don't think you're that great, the people that you know are right. And your ability to connect people, I think is a very unique thing that not a lot of people have. So there's no question with that. I just, I appreciate the way that you handle that. Was there something in your childhood that like kind of created that for you? Was there one of my other kind of favorite questions in the business world is like, who was your giraffe, right? Like who stuck their neck out for you at the beginning of your career that kind of gave you that mental model of like, oh, I'm going to be nice to other people and help them without expecting anything in return because it'll come back to me. Like, I don't know, business karma or something. Sure. My childhood, I'd certainly be remiss not to mention my parents, specifically my my mom and dad were great. But, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have a mom that spent a lot of time with me. Uh, there was never something that I felt like uh, I put my mind to that she didn't think I could accomplish. And all of us need somebody that cheers for us in that way. Uh, mothers tend to do it pretty well. My mom yeah. certainly did. Work-wise, one of my first jobs out of college, I worked for a really neat startup called NextPage. It was in cybersecurity. You know, they had gone through a down round of funding and they gave me an opportunity that wouldn't be normal for most college students where I was working full time, going to school full time. I'd literally go and visit Boston Consulting Group and have to take a red eye to take a test the next day and stuff like that. It was a really neat opportunity for me. But the CEO there, he's been a really influential person in my life. And I just wouldn't, when I was planning on leaving, he sat me down and he just said, you know, Jordan, I really don't want you to leave to go start this company because I love you working for me, but let's talk about whether or not it's the right thing to do. And uh, at the end of that one hour conversation, he's like, you need to go, go with my blessing and I'll write you a, a, your, your first check. Wow. And, you know, those sorts of people, when they've done that for you, you just feel like that you need to pay it back in any way, shape or form that you can. Wow. That's a true I don't know if the term fiduciary mentor is like a thing, but that is, that is a fiduciary mentor, like truly doing what's in your best interest and removing their own ego. Like that's, that's unbelievable. That's not a story that you hear every day. That explains a lot. Yeah. So next page got acquired by Proofpoint. You had this moment uh, with this human that I think is a very good transition into that next company was Unbill, right? And kind of your first foray into fintech as we know it today kind of thing. Yeah. And so it started as actually we were trying to help roommates find apartments together. We called it Comfy at first. And then not too long into it, we really realized we needed to pivot and we were trying to see what other problems we could solve for these people. And they all had a really hard time paying bills together. And so we're like, well, let's build an app that allows them to pull in all their bills. And like, these are, these are somewhat early days in fintech. You know, I talk to people that are like, man, I was involved 30 years ago, right? Which is nuts. But like, these are, you know, this is a decade ago and we're saying, well, what if we ran this on a high yield credit card or high rewards credit card? We could get 2% off of every bill that we paid. And suddenly we're like, 
oh, then we wouldn't even have to charge the consumer for the bill pay. And it just became really, really interesting, really fast. Although we were really just stumbling along in the dark and we had no idea what was going on, but we were paying off like three credit cards every other day in our bill pay volume and stuff like that. What was it like, like stitching together that technology at that point? Because what was that, like 2012, 2013? Like, I imagine yeah. you were rolling your own, as they say, pretty, uh, pretty heavily. I, d- I doubt there were many partners that you could lean on in the in the way that we think about it today. Yeah, that's right. And so we actually, I mean, we were building uh, and we were, I was on with the Move community a couple of weeks ago. We were joking about some of the, maybe I shouldn't mention that in this podcast, but like, no, no, I, was on with, I struggle with that. The the whole, like, don't name other banking as a certain, like, it's like Joe Rogan, not ever having other standup comedians on like, come on, they exist. We got to talk about them. So yeah, no worries. Talk about Move. I love Wade. Yeah. So Wade and myself and Peter and my co-founder, we were all joking about the early days of like screen scraping and how we like everybody thought it was like this magic, you know, box behind the scenes doing stuff. And like really it was just screen scraping the heck out of stuff mm-hmm. uh, really early on and just making it work in any way we could. And like, that's what we did early days. I still remember one of our first connections we made was like, we had a college community, University of Oregon, where we had a big concentration of customers. And so we like built an integration into their utility, local utilities. And it was just mind boggling that we could do it and that we could pass in different people's credit card information and pay these bills. We could split up payments between roommates. I mean, all this sort of stuff. And I think people were pretty mind boggled by it. Like I still, I was wearing an unbill shirt on a plane right before COVID. And I sat next to somebody like, Oh my gosh, I used that during college, you know? And I was like, cool. I started it, you know? Wow. <laughs> it's pretty rad. That's crazy. So, you know, you ventured through the dark and then you kind of eventually found, I mean, would you call it product market fit what you found there and, or was it kind of like product market fit ish and then you got acquired? What, what was that like? Yeah. So I would say it was product market fit ish. We just didn't know so much, you know, like there was so much unknown for us. Yeah. We had just signed Chime as our first customer there, right? On a, on a B2B, on the B2B side, we just launched our API. We just pitched at Finnovate Fall in New York. Wow. And that's where we met Q2 and all the stuff. And we we're like, yeah, we think this is a thing. But, you know, I hadn't really thought about up until that point, like, well, we could convert people's primary banking relationship over by, by switching over all of somebody's payments from their other cards, this new card. And that was really Q2 that opened my eyes to, to that opportunity and, and the acquisition through them. So I would say we were ish product market fit ish, but if I, if I knew what I knew now, I I wouldn't have sold it because I think there would have just been tremendous, tremendous opportunity for us to go chase. But you have to pay a certain price to learn certain things. And and we've, I've paid that price and, and would do so again gladly as needed because I've, I've learned a ton from it. Yeah. It's weird to do that opportunity cost calculation in your head, right? Like if I was in your position in what was it like 2017, 2016, when you exited, like, I'm sure I would have done the same, but yeah, I mean, we've had enough conversations about the way the world is today that we're like, ah, ah we could have, <laughs> we could have done so much more, but still like, Oh, turns out we had a pretty damn good exit. And now you're liquid in a way that the changes at least your life for, you know, some portion of months. And then you kind of, you're, you so you're never going to stop actually working but i imagine it changed the way you kind of thought about time versus money and the the trade-off absolutely it did and it was also a really good gift in another way like i look back at q2 and 
I'm so grateful that they acquired my company. I was, it was like 20, 28, maybe, I don't know, some, somewhere in that range. Yeah. I was young and they took a chance on us and I think it paid off really well for them, but I'm so grateful to them for, for what they did for us because also I couldn't have learned what I learned I think on our own, uh, we needed to go somewhere that really had it more figured out to help, help educate me personally. But then it led to, you know, like when you've had an exit under your belt and it was a relatively cool concept and worked fundraising the next time around gets a heck of a lot easier and, um, being able to go and my co-founder and I together, I mean, I love my co-founder. He's an amazing person. Um, but he's become like my best friend. And that was, that makes it even easier the second time around too. Cause I mean, we won't deal with co-founder infighting. We fought a little bit the first time around, but I mean like so much of that is ironed out and uh, our relationship is stabilized in a way I think was really healthy for us in starting this business together. How important is that? Would you ever advise someone to start or add a co-founder that they've only known for a month or two? You know, like I, I saw this thing the other day that was like Sequoia's doing matchmaking or something like that for co-founders in the fintech space. And I was like, that's probably like a pretty badass list of individuals. But if I didn't know them for like three or five or 10 years, like I would be very nervous to hitch my wagon to them and go do something for another 10 years just because they went to Stanford or whatever. Yeah. If I didn't know them or didn't have investors or really good friends that knew them super well for a long time to help me there, I, I mean, I'm never going to co-found something with somebody else in my lifetime. I don't think early to say that, but I never want to have a different co-founder than the one I have now. So that's kind of, that would be my, my opinion pretty transparently. I just lucked out. Hopefully my co-founder feels the same way, but I lucked out big time. And, um, and so I, I would be very hesitant to start something with somebody I already knew, only knew for a month or two. You know, there's all kinds of legal protections and stuff like that can be put in place. But at the end of the day, an agreement's only as good as like the person you make it with. And if you don't know that person really well, then that's, you know, that's an interesting situation to be in. Yeah, the listeners can't hear me viscerally shaking my head in an up and downward direction. But yes, uh, intense agreement with you over on the side. It's wild to watch great ideas occasionally flounder because two people that didn't really know each other are running after it. And it's just like two people that have the same view of the world or whatever, but they're different. You know, they don't communicate in the right way or whatever it is. It's a PSA to make sure that you know who the hell you're getting into business with before you do so, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And not only that, like strengths and weaknesses on both sides, you know, yeah. like my co-founder's elbows aren't out during board meetings because he wants to get a word in edgewise. And, and, you know, like that, that's just, we don't have that anymore. You know, it's just, we're pretty comfortable with where we add value and it's, it's a good, comfortable relationship. So anyway, there's just, I think that allows you to focus on the most important things and spend time on the most important things so much more easily than when you're worried about all the other stupid stuff that goes on. Yeah. How hard was the conversation or easy was the conversation between you two to go with the acquisition or not? I know there's obviously like investors you had to talk to and other stakeholders there, but I'm, I'm guessing it was, it was you two that made the kind of meat of that decision. It was fairly easy. I mean, we, again, we were both pretty young. We we're both like, Oh, look, we can do this one, two, three, three more times in our career and we're exiting to a publicly traded company. Our first time starting a business that's not many people get to do that, you know, yeah. um, regardless of the financial outcome, uh, just not many people get that sort of opportunity. So we were both pretty on board with, with wanting to move forward with it. 
That's a that's another element, Zach. If I can, yeah. having a co-founder that has a, in is a is in a similar spot financially and life stage to you, I have found to be very helpful hmm. because we're motivated kind of by the same thing. You know, it's like, hey, you might make four million dollars in this exit. Well, is that interesting for both of us? both have about the same net worth. So it's really helpful. That's like, whereas if one of us were much more poor than the other financially or much more well off, it'd be like, Oh gosh, like 4 million doesn't matter to me. Like I'd rather have a 20 million, you know, or something like that. So that has been really nice because I feel like we're pretty well aligned. That's fascinating. I mean, that's an under discussed piece of this whole, like I've never heard someone talk about, financial transparency or even just like same like financial goals when picking a co-founder that's that's really obvious now that you say it out loud but that's absolutely that's very true they started a business when i was in college with a guy that was i'm gonna butcher he's in his 40s i don't know i don't want to go low or high or else he's gonna get offended but he had made it Right. Like he was a multimillionaire a few times over and he was like, yeah, this sounds fun. Let's do this kid. You know, and I was broke for all intents and purposes. And I was just like, I need every dollar that I can scrape out of this thing. And I think to this day, I might actually owe him like 10 bucks or something or 200 because I was just like, oh my God, I got to pay rent. And he was like, I really don't care. And it, it went nowhere because we had separate motivation, separate life stages. You're making me like venture back through my history and realize that that's a very obvious heuristic that I should have applied much earlier. <laughs> so anyways, hindsight's 2020. Let's keep going on this specific kind of Q2 unbill piece. One of the things that fascinates me by it is looking at some of the other, like separating Q2 versus other kind of core banking providers or kind of technology providers to community banks. But I think there's a playbook here of build something that is going to be beneficial for banks, maybe beneficial for a fintech or two too. But you know, at that point, that wasn't even really a term that was being used. Build it up enough that the proven out, as you said, product market fit-ish and then sell it off to one of these. You know, Q2 is a good, like, shining beacon on the hill example. Would you recommend that route for young entrepreneurs that are thinking about just trying to get into fintech? Would you ever think about trying to manifest an exit before you start or think about a strategic avenue there before you start? Or do you think that's putting a cart before the horse? I think if you build a great business, you'll have a great outcome. And so I think the focus should be first and foremost on building a great business. Now, all the investors I talked to asked me, who are the potential acquirers of this business in the long run, right? And I think it, it should be on people's minds. Like, is this something that can be, is it acquirable at some point in time? And the answer for both of the businesses that I've started is, is a pretty clear yes, which has been fortunate. But, and so maybe that's something to have in the back of your mind. But if you can build a profitable business and just run it yourself, like, why do you need to get acquired? You know, why does it even matter if you get acquired? So I'd much rather personally run a business for as long as possible. Um, and that's changed for me. I mean, with Unbill, it was really exciting to have an acquisition offer. We had had two at the time, maybe three, but one that the only one that was really serious was Q2. You know, you look at it in, in hindsight and you say, yeah, I, I wish I wouldn't have sold quite as early. And there's nothing like running your own thing that you built with your hands, you know? And so, yeah, I hope to be in this a very long time uh, with Atomic. And 
you know, at the same time, there are things that can change your financial future so much that you're like, oh, well, that's such a big change for me that uh, I guess I I would make I would make that jump. But yeah, just I remember reaching out to my co-founder. It's like last week and week before. It's like, could you imagine if we didn't start this? Like, this has been so amazing. I, I'm just so glad we did, even though it's hard and and a lot of that sort of stuff. Just things that we're doing that are just so much fun every day. So I remember sitting at MBKC and you drawing Atomic basically out on a whiteboard for me. And you had to explain it like three times because I'm like, wait, hold on, hold on, go back, carry it to, wait, what? You're you're doing, like, this doesn't exist yet. Like you were, from my point of view, the inventor of this space. And maybe I'm being overly generous, but, uh, you know, I think you're the like the godfather of payroll APIs or something, which... Maybe you should be older for me to call you that, but that's right. And the space should probably be more mature as well. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But yeah. Yep. How did you come upon it? I mean, that's one of the things that I, sh- I was so busy trying to understand what the hell you were telling me that I never asked you the question of like, how did you discover this? Yeah. You know, so when Scott and I first started Unbill, and then we did the the product that we ended up building in CardSwap and Biller Direct, I remember there are days we just be like, think of all the other industries this could apply to, where you're screen scraping something, you're putting in data on behalf of a user. And I mean, the many things that entered our minds were like, the payroll, payroll space. But I mean, we went all the way to like, imagine if it would could automatically check into Southwest for you and mm. claim your seat for like in, at the right moment. Like all of that would be doable with our, our technology. And we, we spend the full gamut. We talked about these, like we spent an entire day just thinking of all the different ap- applications of this sort of technology, which I'm sure the people from Plaid and Finicity and all these other places have, have gone gangbusters thinking about where else these sorts of, this sort of technology could be applied. And it's a ton of different places. So it's that I would say the origination was all of those conversations that we had time after time after time, places where this could be applied over the years. So now explain Atomic to us as as listeners, like from a second grade perspective. <laughs> sure. So the way it probably would most easily manifest itself is last time you got a loan, if you had to take in a pay stub or something like that, which is very common, that was probably a pretty annoying experience, either having to get a pay stub, take a picture of a pay stub, submitting it into your into the group that you're getting a loan from. We allow you to directly access your payroll system and we'll pull it for you in a secure and authenticated way and hand it off directly to the the lender, right? So for the lender, it's way more secure than somebody bringing a piece of, piece of paper that says, this is how much I made last paycheck, right? But for the consumer, it should be a heck of a lot easier too um, to be able to verif- verify that information. The other way that this is used is, let's say I sign up for a new bank account. I, I decide to sign up for one of these neo banks, say Chime, and uh, I sign up for my bank account and Chime wants to obviously capture my direct deposit. So I start spending from this account and they say, hey, would you be willing to switch over your direct deposit? Well, and the person's like, yeah, sure. And then like they go away from the app and then three months later, they've never switched over the direct deposit mm-hmm. versus with us, they could bring it up in real time, connect and make the change out happen. What is, and this is kind of a softball, but I want to get your perspective on it. What is the value of a direct deposit? Like explain the the business value. Why does Chime care so much? Why are they, why are they giving me my payroll two days early because it's that important? Like what is, why does this direct deposit thing so important? Yeah. So typically what you see is that the direct deposit is a leading indicator of profitability of one of these accounts. And so I'm trying to think of an example for you, but like, let's say, I mean, it's pretty common 
knowledge that you know a checking account might be worth anywhere from fourteen hundred to three thousand dollars on the LTV uh, of that account. But it only does that if the person has money sent to it and starts spending on the account and all that the, all that other sort of stuff that they can generate revenue off of it. And so uh, I think you can think about it as an LTV of fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars. Direct deposit has also traditionally been fairly sticky. Like I, I change banks, I, I want to continue to use that bank. It's difficult to change banks, and so when I'm willing to make that leap, I'll stay there for a while. And so I would say that's another reason why you see the 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 intense desire from neobanks and banks to acquire that direct deposit because, I mean, that's the bank I'm going to go to and identify most likely as my primary financial institution. What's the like craziest CAC that you've heard of to try and get somebody to switch direct deposits? Like I've seen some pretty wild ones online before. I'm curious, you being in the space, what you've seen. Yeah. So I've heard numbers of $1,200 and up, uh, some some as high as 1500 Uh <sighs> So yeah, I've heard very high, high CACs. How about you? Uh, the highest I've ever heard of was sub a thousand. I think I heard of an 800 and I, but I think it was like a, it was one of the big ones. It was like JP Morgan chase or something. I don't know. I, they have a $12 billion R and D budget so they can spend a couple bucks on getting direct deposit switches. But yeah, I, I, 1500 is nuts, man. That's like a, that's what it costs to acquire a mortgage customer kind of a thing as like a established bank. Like I remember some of the cost of acquisition numbers at MBKC around mortgage were, in that realm. And I, it seems to me that one could make a good amount more off of a mortgage sooner, quicker than one could kind of planting a seed of a direct deposit and harvesting it over time. Yeah. But that's like, that's the key, I think, for a lot of these banks. So if you think of an MBKC, it's like, well, if we get the user's direct deposit, we have their attention so that when the mortgage conversation comes up, we can get that. Right. I think it would be the idea. And I know MBKC crushes on a mortgage. So, but anyway, I, I think that's a big part of viewing it, right? Is we just want to be the main thing that they're coming to all the time. And then when they have a financial need, we pre qualify them and can get into it faster than others. It's really interesting to think about. Like, there's so many damn buzzwords in this market, in fintech in general. Outside of like nuanced, truly nerdy conversations, like, I don't hear a lot of people talking about direct deposit. If anything, like, they talk about even like the payroll switch, like there's these other buzzwords, but when you talk to the bankers and the folks that are responsible for the balance sheet, like this is one of the top things on their mind every damn day, I would think. Yeah, it's interesting because when I left Q2, I, I took a little while off to just spend time with family. And then I went and joined a financial institution in large part because I just wanted to see how they view the world, right? And uh, when you're inside of a financial institution and they're tracking uh, a retail banking relationship, I can tell you every single one is like, what percentage of our customers have direct deposit on file with us, right? And so, and that's where I think all of these these neobanks or challenger banks that we talk about, the direction they've got to head is rebundling all these financial services like we always talk about, right? But when you see that, ironically, they need to be like traditional banks at some point, hopefully mm-hmm. on a modern platform and and much more modern systems and, and different people, plans and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, they're all going to get back there somehow much better than they were before. But anyway... Yeah, I mean, we we unbundle to rebundle. We you know go through winter to get to summer. It's just like the natural cadence of life, right? Like this is this is the direction we're going. So I want to ask you about the fundraise, but I'm also curious about the before we get to what the VC's reaction was. One of the things I've loved about you from the beginning is that you've always kind of prioritized revenue and sales over dollars in from investors. 
what were those early customer conversations like at Atomic? Like, was it like, give me this yesterday, please now? Or was it like, eh, explain this to me more? Like, was it obvious or did it take some time? Uh, yeah, it didn't really take time. Early customer conversations <laughs> were, uh, yeah, you know, I've joked with some people, like, I felt like with Undo, we were like pushing a boulder up a hill for like four years, you know? Yeah. And now I just feel like I'm trying to get out of the way of the boulder that's about to run me over on my way down. And I just like trying to keep my legs under me the whole time. There's a ton of demand. On the, at the same token, we see a fair amount of competitors out there, right? And so we, um, we, we get in competitive conversations pretty frequently, but, uh, like we've been in bake offs with competitors. We've never lost a bake-off with a competitor, which is awesome. Wow. And I mean, we have a few fun things. I was on a call, this is three weeks ago, maybe. And the person was like, hey, I talked to two of the largest neobanks in the country already. This is our first two minutes of our conversation. They're like, I already know you're the best. And so just send us a contract. And I have some questions for you about card swap and Biller Direct because I'm we're wondering like which product we should go with in the market. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. But I mean, like that was an incredible moment for me to be like, wow. You've only been in market for seven months, you know, and we're getting a good reputation. So can we call this product market fit without the ish? Yes, without the ish. (laughs) That's amazing, man. That's amazing. How much of it, just talking to you, I think it's kind of all fintech for the most part. Are you working with any kind of more established incumbent chartered financial institutions that are that are working with you guys? Or is it kind of the, the cutting edge, bleeding edge folks? Uh, mostly the cutting edge, bleeding edge folks, you know, as you can imagine the first seven months, but we've had a lot of conversations with the larger groups that would be surprised if we don't roll out two or three of those relationships this year. I love it. That's amazing, man. Ah, it makes me happy to hear when good people are doing well. So let's go into the fundraising piece. I think this is one of the things that you spend a lot of time advising startups about. And I also kind of want to go to some of your mental models that you share with folks over and over and over again, because I've sat in enough of those rooms with you where I'm like, hey, you just said this to another company and you just said this to another company before this. You should write a blog post or something about this or put up a damn billboard somewhere. But before we get to that, let's talk about fundraising. So customers were just flocking or something like flocking as as much as you can flock in the first seven months. And then going to raise VC, was it similar? Was it, you know, folks just flocking and trying to write you blank checks or was that a kind of pushing a boulder up a hill? What was that experience like? That I would more attribute to the fact that we are second time founders, which is really helpful here, right? And the fintech market is super hot right now and has been for the last couple of years, more than last year, right? So those things played to our favor in a major way. But, you know, Right now, I probably get one or two inbound investors a week reaching out. And I've told my investors that I'll take one meeting a week to to keep the conversation going, but that I don't want to spend my time on that because I want to spend my time building a business. That said, you know, we got to a certain point. Let's see, we raised we raised six six and a half million in June or May. And then we had a lot more money being thrown at us. We had some competitors raise some pretty large rounds and we had equivalent term sheets offered to us, but we didn't want to do that deal because we felt like it would put us in a little bit of awkward spot as far as like how much equity we were giving up compared to where we were as a company at that point. And so we ended up doing a smaller convertible note. And I think in retrospect, that was a wise move on our part. A lot of investors I've talked to just look at it and they say, oh, somebody that's just a little bit more like 
normalized on how they view the world and just not caught up in all the hype and wanting to just raise gobs of money because they can, but raising money when it's offered to us in, in, in good, good terms, I think is important. But I would say in general, it has been quite a bit easier than the first time around, not necessarily flocking to us like the customers have been. And look, look, in a lot of those, they're competitive conversations. Like they're flocking for a solution, right? Yeah. And we, we've been able to win a lot of them, right? But in general, I would say that that's, it's been good. It's been easier than it was the first time around by a long shot. Yeah. Yeah. I want to pull on that competition thread a little bit because I think we both, we both function inside of some busy markets, right? I'm over here in banking as a service. You're in payroll APIs. Like it's pretty hard to open any of our favorite nerdy newsletters without hearing one of those, you know, buzzwords pop up in every sentence, if not every other. How do you think about that culturally? at Atomic. Are you focused on competitors? Do you have the horse blinders on? Like I rewatched Peter Thiel's uh, competition is for losers thing recently. And it kind of got me thinking again about how much we should obsess over the other folks that are building in our space versus just obsessing about the user versus all these places we can apply obsession. Where should one be obsessing? Yeah. So if you were listening to one of my board meetings, the thing you'd hear from me probably 20 times in a board meeting is all we care about is having the best coverage and the best conversion rate. Kind of everything else will come when we do, as we do those things. And that's, you know, when you look at public information that some of our competitors post about their coverage, and then we talk to our customers, our coverage is probably three to 10 times, depending on the competitor we're talking to, uh, of what our competitors are at. And so, and we've made that a very, very intense focus for us. And, and so <clears throat> do we, do we hear about it? Yeah, we hear about it because we're in conversations that are sales conversations that our competitors are involved in as well. And we're, we're being compared, but it's been an intense focus on what is the right thing for the consumer and how do we make sure that we have the best coverage and the best conversion rate? And the way to do that is to continue. We do have a leg up in. I don't mean this in too pejorative a way toward our competitors, but like we built Unbill and CardSwap before, right? So it's just like we've done a lot of this uh, and we're very familiar with how user permission and access to data works. And so that allowed us to build a platform once we were ready to scale our coverage, just grew really, really fast. And so we don't look at our competitors all that often. We hear about them a decent amount just because we're in a lot of deals, but we're, we're certainly most focused on whatever's driving revenue for our customers and giving them the best experience. That is a nice thing also about launching with some of the largest neobanks first, right? Because we get this massive volume that we get to go, go through this search data and we get to prioritize based on the search data, right? Where now we, we know what the top searches that don't result in a, a conversion our system are, and we can optimize for those. And we, we saw a 10% improvement in our system, and we do a lot of volume. But in January, we saw a 10% conversion based on some things that we saw in that data in November that we fixed in December and made improvements on December. So anyway, the, the, we, we, we're moving the needle on a lot of things, but most focused on our customers and make sure we do what's right for them. That's really interesting. That reminds me of my the robo-advisor. I worked out straight out of college, Bloom. We were using Yodly. And I remember there was like a two-month time frame where the only thing we worked on was an integration of Fidelity. Because if our integration of Fidelity broke, that was like 60% of our business or something. I, don't, I made that number up. But it was, it was the, the lion's share of our business. And I was just like, are we like... 
focused on the right thing. And then I asked a couple more questions. I was like, oh shit, we're focused on the right thing. Okay. Fix fidelity immediately, or we don't have a business here. I was like, but there's all these other institutions. It's, it's interesting the way that, uh, the power law rule kind of accrues to these things. So that's, yes. that's interesting. Was it a tough decision to go with the convertible note versus a blank check from a, in a priced round kind of a thing? Like what, how hard was that? Did, was it a personal decision? Just kind of CEO, was it you and your co-founder and your early, early like angel investors? Like how did you get to that decision? Yeah. Some of our investors were favorable of doing it. And, but honestly, I called all the investors that wanted to offer us that must much larger check and I just said, look, here's how I'm thinking about it. I think other people raising massive rounds right now are making a mistake. Uh, I think they're giving away too much of their business too early. And I think it's going to be really hard for them to kind of back into the valuation they need for their Series B. And and I want to build it a little bit more step-by-step. Step. And extremely positive response from all of our investors and my co-founder on it. And so it was two weeks of deliberating and thinking about it. But and so in that way, it was like a, a hard decision that way. But once we saw it clearly, we're like, oh, this is totally the right move to make. And uh, and the other thing was we already had so much capital. Like it would be a different story if we were burning a ton of cash and we needed the capital. But we weren't burning a ton of cash. We had a ton of money in the bank. And so I was like, okay, sure. Can we put another $7 million in the bank? Can Greylock be a lead investor? Which is, okay, cool. They're a cool investor, tier one, yeah. like amazing group to have involved. Okay, that's probably a reason to do it. They can help on the hiring front and some other things that we're going to be doing more, putting a lot more emphasis on in the next six months. So, I mean, all those reasons, it was a yes to bring on that money. But at the same time, a ton of cash in the bank right now. And with the revenues that we're going, we're making, you know, I would be surprised if we couldn't cash flow this business this year, uh, if we really wanted to. And the cash flow in the bank was, or the cash flow, the cash in the bank, the war chest that you were kind of already sitting on, correct me if I'm wrong, but it it's pre-booked revenue, right? Like it's pre-booked switches and we don't have to go into too much of that strategy, but it's business that is going to be done that's actual revenue. It's not investor dollars, right? Yeah. So we had six and a half million dollar seed round, which was right. in June. Right. But on top of that, We've been generating substantial revenues since we launched our product in July, July, August timeframe that, yeah, I mean, if you looked at our burn rate today, you'd be like, yeah, we have a burn rate, we're losing money, but we're very quickly coming up on that burn rate. Yeah. How could you raise VC if you weren't losing money? I think that's the only way this works, right? Like if you're, if you're, <laughs> yeah, if you're right. printing profitable dollars, like why the hell would they give you any of their money? Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> I think we both have way too many VC friends to be talking this much shit. So I'll stop, but uh, good times, good times. So you spent a lot of time advising startups. I think God, what, like five out of the five that I had in my last cohort at Found City Fintech, you've ended up being an advisor for or something. You spend a lot of time with other founders giving back. What from this kind of conversation around fundraising is like a higher level mental model or takeaway or whatever that you find yourself giving to founders regularly or that you would just give to founders kind of based on this conversation? Like, should people be less aggressive on fundraising? I know it's a end of one kind of thing, but any like high level pieces there that you would give as far as advice? Yeah. As a CEO, it's my responsibility to make sure the company is funded. And so if you look at my, uh, like for example, in May, June timeframe, I dropped the ball on some business development opportunities because I was working on that seed round 
And it's more important for me to raise money than continue to do business development, unfortunately, right? But that's because it's my obligation to build this company. And so we hired a chief revenue officer in August to, so that it could be his main responsibility to, to, um, run sales. And I still do a ton of sales work, but it's his main responsibility to do that. And when I need to put, pair off and just focus on fundraising all the time whenever we're raising, I can do that because that is when my number one obligation. So for, you know, for the CEO of, of a, of a, of a startup, you know, that's the number one responsibility is making sure the company stays funded. And so, you know, sometimes I talk to founders that call me and they're like, I have three months of capital left and I need to raise money. I'm like, the answer was I need to raise money like six months ago, you know, or, mm. or at least three months ago, because when you have that tight a time frame, it's just going to be way harder uh, for you to raise money unless you're absolutely crushing it. Right. But um, if you're not absolutely crushing it, it's going to be a really tight window of time. And so one thing that I would say is I would never, as soon as I hit six months left in the bank, I would go out and fund- fundraise instantly and maybe before that. But the other one is, one of our investors shared this with me early on, but he was like, you raise money when it wants to be raised, right? Mm. And when we had people coming to us offering these kind of really massive valuations, I was like, okay, we should raise some money here and do this convertible note. It's the right thing to do. We're just not going to take as much as they want to give us. And I think that, you know, you're a fool not to take cash and you can because nobody knows what the future is like. And you have to do that. That's the right thing to do for your business. But I also tend to think that, when you're looking at raising money, like there's TAM, there's all the other things to think about, and they're all important. But if you look at the direct deposit switching market, the TAM on the direct deposit switching market is not that big. I mean, we're talking about 250 to $300 million. It's not massive. Do I think it'll grow in the next few years? Yeah. But we are uniquely positioned to absolutely crush that market and do a really good job with it. And it will open up doors for us. And allow us to stair step into other really awesome opportunities, which one of them we're already in is the verification of income and employment. But, you know, those sorts of things are going to be. And so sometimes founders are like, well, I don't have a billion dollar idea or they get pushback from an investor who says, well, this isn't a billion dollar idea. So it's not big enough for me to invest in. And I would just say, you know, our, our, our initial product was verification of income and employment and direct deposit. Um, before that, we had focused on some account opening stuff. We were looking at balance transfer, um, but our customers fell apart on that. We really struggled bringing it to market. And so this is where we landed. And you know those market sizes, they're decent size, right? But there's a couple of others that we look at beyond it that are much, much bigger. Um, and those are the things that, that we're trying to highlight to investors. This is our foot in the door to those much better, better opportunities. It's interesting, right? Because you as the kind of first mover and first entrant, I've always had that question. Like, how big is this market? Like, you're going to do a direct deposit switch one time a year max or something. And then I hear about the Atomic Fundraise. Oh, and then I hear about, you know, like five others. And I'm like, are they are we opening Starbucks like literally right next to each other? Like not even across the street, just right next to each other, like the exact same thing. And like, how do we split this? Like you're the local coffee shop or something. And like, they have a following and they have people that are going there every day. And then three Starbucks start next door. Like how does this actually shake out for everyone? And I guess the answer is that it doesn't, but that kind of begs the next question of, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. It's not just about this round, right? It's about the next and it's about the one after that and kind of being able, I mean, you got to make it there, right? So you need enough to get to the next one. Yeah. But how do you think about that? You know, with some of the, uh, 
rational or irrational exuberance that we see in the space today? Like, should people be listening to their investors about these valuations? Should they have strong conviction themselves? Should they take whatever the investor offers them and cut it in half? Like, how should a founder be thinking about that piece? Yeah, I try to think about our valuation in terms of what could you expect for a normal acquisition of a company that's growing at a very rapid pace, which we are, revenues, and like what what could a, a legitimate acquisition be like, right? And and I think valuations that grow too attached from what a potential acquisition could possibly be like is where you find yourself in a pretty dangerous place, right? Because nobody's going to pay $100 million for a company with no revenue and no product launched, right? And, and versus, you know, like, hey, I could see somebody paying, you know, $50 million for a company that has brought a product to market that is fairly unique. I could see it has an incredible team and has some initial traction, decent revenues. I could see that happening. And so at the same time, you want to be able to push your valuation as high as you can as founders. But our first round of financing, I actually took probably a 30 to 40% hit on valuation to go with an investor that I thought the world of. And that was without a doubt the right move. And so it is, it should never be about purely about valuation. In my opinion, that's like the fourth or fifth item on the list when you're taking money from an investor. I mean, I genuinely love my investors. I'd spend time with them on a weekend. And that was when we looked at building out our board, my investors like, what's your criteria for who you want on your board? I was like, look, if I got stuck in an elevator with this person for two hours, would I come out wanting to spend more time with them in a month or two? Or would I come out hating them? Like, is it somebody that if we were at a conference together and he wanted to go or she wanted to go grab drinks, I'd want to go spend an hour or two with him or her, right? Like that's, that's the kind of, because at this tier, when you're getting investment from these really sharp groups, most of that is the same. Like they're all a similar level of brilliance and capability and all that sort of stuff. It really comes down to, do I want to spend time with them? Do I want them on a call with me for, for an act two hour board meeting? Like, or, and would it not be exhausting? Right. Would it be enjoyable? And that's, that's more where it comes down to. And that doesn't mean they agree. One of my investors, he's really blunt and he disagrees with me on a, you know, not too regular basis, but a fairly regular basis. And I love it about him that he's really candid with me um, as opposed to, oh, maybe you could consider a little bit different idea here. You know, it's like, no, that doesn't make sense to me. And here's why. And people that I can work with like that, my co-founder and I have that relationship, right? Where it's not offensive, where it's just very free flowing and, and helpful. Are there other pieces about board formation that are important for early stage startups to think about. Like I, I know, you know, kind of going back to our Fountain City FinTech days, our Fountain City FinTech days, you were there with me, Jordan. It was, we were building yeah, it together, right. baby. <laughs> what are kind of the, some of the basics? You know, if you're going seed to series A, you're going to add that first two board members, whatever it is outside of the co-founders, other than enjoying them as humans and trusting them. Are there other dynamics that you should think about of when to add them, who to add, how to add them, just other pieces to that? Cause I think it's a, it's an under discussed thing pretty often. I think. Yeah. I've actually seen multiple founders that are like, I just, I can't get that person that would be an incredible board member for me. Uh, and so I think that those board conversations and thoughts, if you know, you're going to be a founder one day, 
they start way earlier on in your career. And like anybody that thinks they're going to be a founder in the next five to 10 years needs to start thinking about and generating those relationships now, because you don't want to get to that point and be like, okay, you're going to have investors that take board seats naturally. And who else is going to be on your board? And not that it has to be a person in your pocket, but like somebody that you feel very confident that will, you know, have your back, so to speak, but also just not have your back when the time is right and push up against you uh, and be supportive of you. That's it. It takes time to feel out that relationship. So I, I highly recommend trying to nurture relationships with potential people that could be on your board as early in your career as you possibly can. Because the other thing that you don't want to do is be like to your investors, well, I'm going to invite this other person to our five person board. And they're like, who? Like never heard of them. Like, okay, fine. But that to me is a signal of weakness on the founder. If they can't bring somebody to the table that could potentially have an impact that's possible to the board. I mean, one of our board members, I just loved his recommendations. So we're like, he's like, Jordan, I'm an, I'm an investor already. You don't need me on your board because you already have me, right? Make me a board observer. Let's go find somebody in the market that could open more doors for you that can go do that kind of stuff. And I'll work out a relationship with them to get them on your board. They'll be a good friend of mine, right? But mm. they'll have my interests at heart, but they'll open more doors for you than I would be would if I were on your board. And like those are the sorts of people you want around you is people that think about it more in that way. And we actually ended up not going that route. We ended up opening up an advisory board that that person came and joined that they wanted to participate and a few other people that really allow us to get out quickly to the market and help us out. I mean, it sounds like 90% of this is trust and relationships and the other 10% exists somewhere in a spreadsheet or something that is important, but very secondary. Is that a like fair random distinction number wise? Like, do you think that it, it is that relationship focused versus like, I don't know, quantitatively focused or whatever the opposite would be? Yeah, I do think so. The only other piece that a board member needs to have experience on is just corporate governance, right? Like I've seen, I've been on boards and seen boards where you listen to a conversation, you're like, that is not good corporate governance, right? And it's just people that aren't used to being a part of a C corp and how those operate and how, how, how they should all work, right? So that would be the only other element is there needs to be enough there for that person that they can give good guidance in a situation where good corporate corporate governance is needed. But for me, I would say it is almost entirely like do would I once they've met a certain criteria, which is expertise, you know, it's got to be, you know, decades in many cases of awesome financial services, whatever expertise or SaaS expertise, whatever, right? After they've met that criteria, and then it's like, okay, friendship and do I want to spend time with this person? Uh and not just friendship, but just like, yeah, is there trust? You said it better than I did on that way. No, I mean, I think it's just like being a human, man. Like there's a lot of people in this life that I respect the hell out of, but I would not want to sit in a room with for three hours, right? Or that I wouldn't want to pick up their call if they called me on a Saturday evening and I would just be like, yeah, I'll call them on Monday. That's a work call, right? And it sounds like whoever this is, these people need to be people that you would pick up that phone for with not like a hello, but like, hey, how are you? You know, like be excited about this human calling you and actually glass half full, not glass half empty, which I think I, I just feel like a lot of early stage first time founders specifically are just kind of like, oh, this person went to X school, went to Y business straight out of X school and then did Z thing. And I'm going to put them on my board because of that. We don't actually get along that well, but they've done things and they'll help me raise money or something. So I think that's a 
that's a damn important takeaway. And, and also in the age of COVID, like we got to remind people to build friggin' relationships for the long term, right. And like show up with humanity. I think it's, it's very important. I agree a hundred percent. So switching the flip or flipping the switch on that, you recently joined the board of directors for Solera. So congrats on that, my friend. Thank you. How did you make that decision? How long have you known them? Uh, what, how, how did, how did that come about? Because that's a, uh, I don't mean a ton of fintech founders that are on boards of, uh, boards of banks, unless like their family owned the bank in a previous life or something. Sure. I've known Solera for a couple of years now and that one is a perfect example of just trust, and I really like the people there. They also, I mean, part of liking liking them is like they don't think about banking the way that traditional people think about banking. I mean, I've heard it straight from their CEO and their head of head of business development. Like, we don't want to be the bank for everybody. We want to do a couple of things really, really well. If I'm being honest, like when a bank comes and asks me like what they could consider to do differently, I was like, I'm like, find a niche and execute on that niche mm-hmm. and do it better than anybody else in the entire world. And that's what they have done. And so in a pretty natural outgrowth, I mean, I, I helped them on some PPP stuff and um, I helped them with some other things, right, uh, of just natural relationship building over a couple of years. And I was talking with their chief financial officer one day and it was just like their board meeting came up and she, and it was just like, Hey, why aren't you on our board? And like, <laughs> would that be something you'd consider? And, and it was just like, yeah, like uh, I would. And, and the reason why I think it's everything gets back to banking in some way or shape or form on this, on this fintech side of things. Right. And so I enjoy having the inside and seeing things through their eyes. Like that was really Insightful for me to see, oh, COVID happened, drop off. What, what, what is a bank CEO thinking about when all that happens and the fit hits the shan, so to speak, and everybody's just going, I don't know what just happened. I want to be involved in those conversations at a banking level and, and I want to see how they operate and do things because I think it's insightful because again, like if you're Chime or Robinhood or any one of these groups, right? It comes back to banking somewhere on the back end of them. And I'm intrigued by how that works and functions. The niche thing, right? Is this like NBKC was, was and is damn good at mortgage, right? And like the deposit side yes. is getting better and better and better. But like, oof, that mortgage business is, uh, it's, it's a beauty. And for Solera, wasn't it like solo IRAs or something? I'm going to butcher this. Is that correct? And so, yep, self directed IRAs and 401ks. Yeah. And that's not what you would think of as like a cash cow for a bank, but they're just sprinting, right? I mean, they've built an unbelievable business with that specific focus. And I don't even know what the question is. I guess it's more just like another public service announcement of like, if you are a community banker listening to this, like pick a thing and be damn good at it and be willing to not be great at everything or sacrifice being decent at everything to be great at something almost, I guess, is the advice. Yeah. And one, I think like you look at some banks can do it. Chase can do it. Right. Sure. But but that's because they're just so massive, right? But a local community bank, they just don't have the resources to compete, right? And so they've got to be able to figure out. And and for so many of them, they're like, well, gosh, my retail business, my retail checking account, my whatever, that's my that's what that's what's supporting my business. Yeah, it may be only mildly growing or maybe mildly decreasing. But man, I would just be like 
I would put an entire task force if I were the CEO of a community bank on like, let's figure out what a niche is that we can crush it in. Because if you look at the ones partnering with fintechs is one niche. I mean, there's only really 20 to 30 banks in the United States that do it, right? Yeah. Um, that's a potential niche, right? But there's also, I mean, just like there's construction loans. There's just like, uh, there, there's all kinds of, there's medical loans. There's, there's tons of different things they can specialize in. Irene 401k was a great example for Solera. And I would advise anybody looking in that space, Solera's crushing it so you don't even stand a chance. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but I would just say like there's tons of other opportunities to go and step into. And I think if they look really closely, they might feel like they're sacrificing their golden goose for this other opportunity. But I would say in the long run, as checking accounts just become so commonly offered by so many people, that's not anything to shake a stick at. Their experience is going to be 10 times better than a local community financial institutions. You got to figure out what they're really good at and and lean into it. It's a scary thing, man. I don't envy. I I, I think it would be really fun, but I don't envy being the CEO of a community bank. In, in general, like I was so friggin' impressed working for Brian Unruh at MBKC. Like that man is just a, a rare breed. The ability to put on your, I feel like I've said horse blinders like 12 times in this conversation. I guess I'm thinking about your horse. Um, we'll talk, we'll talk about that at the end. <laughs> But his ability to put on the horse blinders and just say, no, I'm not going to chase that squirrel. I'm not going to chase this squirrel. I'm going to spend half of my friggin' day answering glass door reviews to make sure that we have a good culture and answering, you know, reviews online for a mortgage business to make sure that people know that we really care. And the rest of the time, I'll like think about, you know, what the future holds. But I mean, that man has put his job on the line multiple times to do what he knew what was correct. That sometimes a board of especially like a family oriented, right? Like multi-generational bank, like it, that takes some arm twisting as a non-family member CEO or even as a family member CEO and the fortitude to like stick through with your strategy. It just seems like it would be really hard not to chase every squirrel that comes across your desk. Like Solera has a culture that could partner really well with fintechs, right? I think they're fast. They could build a significant business there, but it seems like they got enough on their plate and they're focused elsewhere that like maybe they get to that, but it's not going to print cash. Yeah. And like Marty, their CEO, Brian, I mean, there's a handful of them, maybe less than 10 that I've met in the United States so that are bank CEOs that fit in this category that are just like, I, Brian, I've, in the conversations I've had with him, he is at, at the same time open-minded, like, oh my gosh, like, cool. Like, I'm ready to hear new things. But like you said, super focused on what he's really good at and 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 the future. And he's not riding his own coattails of success from the past in any way, shape or form from what I've seen. No, and God, no. he's just like, so focused on what is the future like, you know, in a world where you see community banks being gobbled up. Uh, I think those are the sorts of things that are, that are going to separate and create value for the traditional financial institutions. Definitely. One quick thing before we get to some of kind of the, the closing things, I would imagine that the average fintech nerd, the average listener to this podcast probably is not familiar with the liability or responsibility that one takes on when joining a community bank board. Number one, it probably wasn't like a super straightforward, easy decision because there is some fiduciary duty there, right? There is a certain amount of legal responsibility. 
So can you expand on that? Like what kind of responsibility you take on and just what that's like? Because I think it's a another nuance that people don't think a lot about. Yeah, I mean, because they are so tightly connected with the OCC and FDIC, depending on the bank, right? Um, you know, and governed by those groups, you know, you do enter into a fair amount of liability and it's a kind of scary reading of you of all of your rights, uh, or not your rights, I guess the rights you're giving up, the obligations that you're taking upon yourself when you join a board like that. But at the same time, I mean, I would view it as it's not too dissimilar from joining any other board. I have a fiduciary obligation to do what's in their best interest, right? Um, and, and to do what's in the best interest of shareholders. And, you know, there are some other things that come along with that, like, you know, your yearly training on the different, um, like KYC or sorry, AML, BSA, like all that sort of stuff, oh, which yeah. is fascinating. And I, you know, there are a lot of obligations there. Unfortunately, I've been in the industry a long time and I'm pretty familiar with what all those things are. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely like, wow, I said yes to this. And then I'm looking at the document I'm about to sign. It's like, that's a lot of responsibility to make sure that I'm living up to my fiduciary obligations here. But I was, you know, one of them asked me like, why would you join our board? Like, why would that be interesting to you? Like, <laughs> you're doing all this really cool fintech stuff. Like, you don't need this. And I was like, well, it's true. I don't need it. But I have found the board members that I have that I've been able to surround myself by the investors, they make me a better person. And while compensation on a board would be interesting, maybe. And it's actually not that much compensation to be on a board like this, typically, unless it's a really, really, really big company, right? Yeah. It's it's more about, hey, who are the people I'm going to be able to rub shoulders with on a regular basis? And what will I learn? And you can't learn anything in, in like these little one-year increments or, you know, just time periods like that. It takes time being around people, seeing ups and downs and how really, really smart people handle those ups and downs and what they think about in those moments and what they say. It takes time seeing those things to be able to round yourself out and feel way more comfortable with where things are going. And it settles you to be around those sorts of people on a regular basis, but also makes you more valuable for other interactions you have including running my own business at Atomic. You're such a sponge, man. You sit in these rooms. I mean that in a good way for the record. <laughs> um, such you're such a sponge. You're just mooching on everybody. God, I can't That's take right. where, but you, you are, you sit in these rooms and like the amount that I learn, you know, and this is like, you just shut up and let me say this, but you know, so much more than me. Right. But you still ask me my opinion every time I'm sitting in a room with you. Like, I will ask you about something that I have no business knowing anything about. That's why I just asked you. You'll give me your answer and then you'll say, what do you think? Which is like called being human, I think, for a lot of people. But it's also not the way that a lot of people handle these conversations. Your willingness to learn from people that are earlier on in their career and later on in their career, I think, is like part of that. I'm going to use the term magic and then you're going to blush, but it's part of the magic that you're kind of creating. And I was talking and I'll take this further so that you don't have to blush and downplay it. But I was talking to Lindsay Davis this morning, your new head of markets at Atomic. And she's amazing. Is, she is. And I was thinking about that willingness to learn from younger folks, that willingness to learn from older folks and just your general sponginess, especially since COVID about building your team. How do you think about bring, balancing that out, creating a culture? Are you just hiring because Lindsay's a badass or because we all know she is? How do you think about all that? 
again, I said this in my last board meeting to my board. I was like, it's my responsibility to hire people that are better at their jobs than, than I am at their jobs. And Lindsay fits that category by long shot. Um, I learn things from her regularly. Um, but it's also people talk about having diversity on your team. And while it is, that is a key reason why I think, I think that's really important to have diversity on your team. I'll just say that, but it's, it's more than just saying we need diversity on our team. It's I need somebody that's going to stand up to me and say, I'm wrong. And strong people will do that. And Lindsay will do that with me, which is something I love about her is she'll stand up to me and be like, you're wrong. And here's three reasons why. Mm -hmm. And I can push back and say, Hmm, like maybe, but here's two more things to consider. And it's a, if we get to a much better place at the end of it, I mean, I've, I've thought often about one of the books written about Abraham Lincoln's called team of rivals. I think it is. And he's able to put together this group around him of people that, um, that have very different opinions, but that's part of what leads to his success. And while Lindsay and I agree on a ton of things, we also have some different views on several other things. And if I had, if we had a bunch of people that all agreed, we wouldn't build a very cool business. Um, and so, uh, or be as agile and as, um, perceptive as we ought to be as a company about the opportunity. And so Lindsay brings, I mean, I'm not a researcher. I've never time, spent time doing a lot of the stuff she has from CBE and all that sort of stuff. She brings, and, and then I bring kind of this other side, which is I've started companies that she yeah. was researching in this industries about and bring some insights to the table. Maybe she hadn't gotten from the inside, but then she's bringing these macro insights to the table that I hadn't gotten in, hadn't seen because I was on the inside running this thing. Right. And so that's just, I think that's a, you know, one person that's done it really well. I'll just, um, CEO of Dave. I'm not sure if you've seen his hiring, what he's done in the last year. Jason has brought in an executive team that I actually sent him a note the other day. And I was just like, dude, if you ever do uh, a podcast on hiring and recruiting, I want to listen to it because that guy has done some wicked cool stuff to bring in some amazing people. And, and huh. so anyway, I think there's, but it's hard. Recruiting is hard. Like just yesterday, and I won't belabor this point too much, but just yesterday I spent with my, I called four different people in our company and I was like, look, we're going to double our head count in the next year, in the next, sorry, three months. What do we do to make sure our culture is maintained? Right. And it was a really good conversation with a couple of people on our executive team, a couple of people not on our executive team. Like, what do you love about our culture? How are we sucking at creating a culture right now? And then I actually posted on LinkedIn and a couple of Slack groups. It's like, tell me what you guys are doing to improve your culture at a time when you're hiring 25 people and they're all remote and you maybe never met any of them in person for key roles. Yeah. How many employees do you have now? We have 25. Oh, okay. So you were, that was directly referring to you. Well, it's really interesting because you and Lindsay haven't met, right? Like that's the other piece of this 2020, 2021 insanity is like you're hiring. Like we're both, number one, we're both talking about Lindsay Davis, who used to be at CB Insights, now is at Atomic. We actually are going to do an episode with her at some point within the next few months. And we're talking about doing some more stuff together. So listeners, you will know who the hell we're talking to if you don't know yet. So put that by the wayside. And also, I'm glad you said that about Jason and Dave, because I think I'm supposed to interview him his PR team reached out. So I'm going to go down the the recruiting rabbit hole with him for sure. So I'm really glad you said that. But how do you get conviction 
around someone like Lindsay, right? Like, I guess it, with Lindsay, it's easier because like the proof of work just of writing and talking and video and everything else like that woman has, is prolific. So it's easy to get conviction about her. But how do you get conviction about somebody without meeting them? And what are some of those, if you're willing to share takeaways that you had about how you do maintain that culture as you do blitz scale kind of thing or whatever the right buzzword is? Yeah. So with Lindsay, it was, hey, I knew like 10 people that knew her and she and I had never met before. And that was really helpful for me. Our chief revenue officer was the same way. I'd never, I've never met him in person either. And we hired him in August. And what we agreed to was, hey, look, I don't know you that well. You don't know me that well. Yeah. You may hate me. I may hate you. <laughs> but that's less likely. I don't really hate many people in the entire world. But like, But I was just like, let's try this out like three days a week sort of the thing for four months and see how it goes, which he was wide open to, which I loved, right? Because that allowed us to kind of try it out. We were paying them a decent salary, but only like, you know, three quarters or whatever it was. Yeah. And and we both knew that we were we were trying each other on for size. And at the end of that time period, it was, wow, this is working really, really well. And um, my co-founder is like, gosh, Jeff was a great hire, right? And so it allowed us to try some of these things out before making a more complete decision. I think that's where a lot of people get caught up, right? It's like, uh, I have to do this or this. Oftentimes, there's a middle ground you can try. And he was willing to do that with us. And that was really helpful. That's really interesting. So now you've got this team of, you know, 25, how many, like ballparking, how many of them do you think you've met in person? Probably 10 to 12. Okay. And then you're going to add another 25 that you basically will be legally not allowed to meet for all intents and purposes for like six months or something. How do you think about adding those team members? Like what are the key focuses that you have as a company? Is it making sure that the teams remain two pizza teams or whatever? Is it about regular all hands and meeting more regularly and over communicating? Like what are some of the strategies that you're thinking about to actually scale the, the why of what you're doing? Not just, you know, the what. Yeah. The all hands meetings to me really suck. Actually, they're just not a good way for us to, you know, cause especially as we grow, it's like, man, okay, I've got 25 people on a call who has a question. You know, nobody's going to answer. Nobody's yep. going to raise their hand in a zoom meeting. Yep. And so we did uh, an escape room with our team uh, over Christmas. It was a very fun activity for everybody to participate in. We split everybody into their teams, but allowed them to compete as teams, uh, which was which was a fun way for each for everyone to get to know each other. Um, and then we came in together and, and talked about who was the best and who was the worst. Um, and my team was the worst, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, but then um, like another the thing that we're looking at doing is we've, we've gone and looked at who, what are people's strengths and weaknesses. And we have somebody on our team that was a private chef for like five years. And we have like four or five people that love cooking. And so we're going to do like a chopped bake-off challenge where we're going to send ingredients to these four people's homes. And we're all going to watch on Zoom while they make lunch for themselves out of four random ingredients like and, and see what they create, right? And I think those sorts of things, like as a founder, one of my biggest concerns is how do we create uh, a culture of belonging, mm. right? Having a huge mountain to climb gives you a very natural, that's why people, it's so intoxicating to be part of a startup sometimes because you've got this huge mountain to climb. You can't spend that much time bickering or arguing or that sort of stuff because you're like, hey, whatever, like we have a customer that just went live and gave us 20,000 new accounts to service today, right? We don't have time to deal with anything else. But, but there also has to be this, hey, I belong here. And how do we create that if we're not together very often, right? And so that's what – those are some things we've done to try to solve for that on our end. 
I love it. And the, the nuance there that actually I think is probably not what you thought I would pick up on, but the fact that you're doing a lunch and not a dinner, I think is very important. Organizing these things during the workday, especially when we're all working across probably what three different time zones. You know, if you try and schedule something at 4 p.m. Pacific, it's really awkward for your friends on the East Coast, you know? So I appreciate creating quote unquote work time, I guess, like as if nine to five is actually a thing that anybody's functioning in anymore, but creating, you know, acceptable work time to log into this thing and laugh at your fellow coworkers as they try and turn four ingredients into a vichyssoise or something. So I like, I love that. That just sounds fun. Yeah. And you're, but it was purposeful and earned. Like I'm a dad and we have, you know, like I want to be home with my kids, uh, you know, before seven o'clock at night. Yeah. And that's been something that COVID has really brought out. I've heard it from multiple investors. I'm like, man, I used to travel so much. I'm enjoying spending time with my spouse. I'm enjoying spending time with my kids. I hope I don't go back to who I was prior to COVID. Wow. That's a powerful sentence. Yeah. It's true. I've heard it from multiple people. Wow. Don't want to go back to who I was. That is a powerful fucking sentence, man. People were very unhappy about this traveling all the time thing. It seems like I always thought people Maybe liked without it. Knowing about it. Well, the tough thing is Clayton Christensen writes about this so well in his book, how you measure your life. Yeah. But it's so easy for me to take a customer call and feel like, wow, like they love us. We're going to go sign a contract. And then I go into my house and like, my kid throws spaghetti all over the wall and I have to wash it off. Right. And how do I feel that that is victory of some kind? Right. But like prioritizing those relationships, that is what makes life meaningful in the long run. And as humans, we're also tied into the short term. That's hard for us to see that if I don't lay these seeds now, my kid's not going to want to talk to me in 20 years. You know, and so uh, those are, I think, key lessons that people are picking up on more now than they maybe ever have before. Oh, for sure, man. The the clarifying of needs. I mean, I've never spent this much time with my my parents. Like, I mean, this is a lot to share, but like I had a I have a probably 200 percent increase in improvement of relationship with my dad since COVID's hit. My mom and I have always been great, but just having the time to spend with my dad on a weekly basis, I'm like, oh, that's why you did this when I was younger. That's why you thought, ah, okay, we're cool now. Like at the beginning of COVID, I was not exactly like, oh yeah, we're cool now, but now we're cool. That's great. It's amazing the way that the forcing function has manifested itself in the world, you know? Yep. Agreed. Yeah. All right, brother. I know we're coming up on time here. I want to give you at least a second or two or 25 to let people know where to find more info about you, more info about Atomic. If you were doubling the team over the next few months, folks should probably take a look at the jobs board. Where should they find these things? Yeah. So if you go to our website, atomic.financial, you'll find most of it. Our jobs board should be up in the next couple of weeks. And um, and same thing, you know, you can go to that website to learn more about us as a company and send in a message if you want to uh, talk to us. We're also on several of the industry Slack channels uh, where you can ping us if you wanted to message us directly. Speaking of that, I don't know if you want to put this out in the world or not, and I can cut this out if not, but do you want to plug Finnovation or anything in that realm? You know, I, I do help out several companies when I can on the side. My time is so limited these days that, uh, you know, especially with this new assignment to Solaris board, I have more limited time for helping those sorts of things. Sounds good, man. Well, with that being the answer, I extra appreciate you taking an hour and a half to talk to me. This has been a uh... A wonderful, like, I, I always learn a lot talking to you, but I also generally get a little bit of a therapy session out of it. And I definitely, definitely have here had some introspective moments and 
and also just picked up some new things. So I appreciate you, man. The, the friendship is very special to me and I'm, I'm really glad that we met. Likewise, Zach, I feel the same. I'm super excited for you and excited for all the things you do. I mean, like creating community in fintech, I think is important. You've done an awesome job of that. Um, but you're also just always willing to talk when I have questions and things like that, which I very much appreciate. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Jordan Wright, CEO at Atomic. Dive into the show notes for more on Jordan and Atomic. As a reminder, this episode was brought to you by vSum. Go to v-sum.com to learn more and apply to be part of the next event. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and enjoy life. It ain't bad, you know? We're lucky. Go take advantage. See you next time.